0: Log Talk Radio. Good morning and thank you for joining us for Three Women Three Ways. We're the show that kind of tackles some uh difficult topics. So we talk about things like domestic violence and we talk about some of the issues in the world and to quite frankly also talk about whatever else tickles my fancy. I'm Heather Stark, and I'm your host, and uh, this is, we are are now looking, entering our fourth year of doing this show, and so it's been fun, it's been exciting, and I've had the opportunity to meet such wonderful people and such interesting people during this show, Uh, and one of them, I have a feeling, I've just met. Um, Sharon, um, I I should have checked with you on the pronunciation of your name, is it Mayu? It's Mayu. May you. Okay. Yes. Okay. Mayu, okay. Sharon Mayu joining us from Alberta uh, uh, Can- in Canada. And uh, Sharon works in domestic violence issues, but she also is a researcher, and she uh, published an article in Journal of Family Violence last year that uh, really spoke to me. The title of the article is Fatal Families Why Children Are Killed in Familicide Occurrences. Sharon, thank you for joining us. What Thank led you for you having to me. what led you to uh, research and do this article
1: well um recent like recent to that to the writing of that article um there had been an incident very close to home here, actually less than seventy kilometers away uh wherein a male partner killed his ex female partner and also her daughter and I thought you know I just I didn't understand why that would happen and so I felt it was something that um was unfortunately happening um in the news more and more and um needed to have a look into y- you know why what was the motives behind um involving the children you know in those cases.
0: Yeah, and 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 we do we see this in the news um way too frequently. Um I mean it's not the extremely rare occurrence that we Tend to believe that it is. I mean, this happens a lot. Um, in your report, uh, you said that the the uh, rate of familicide, and, and the definition of familicide is where one family member wipes out the entire family, kills the right. entire family. Um, now, yeah. there are instances where the entire family is not there, but they wipe out the ones that are there. Uh, Sometimes you'll find a child who was at a neighbor's house or something, and and that child is spared. But basically it's whoever happens to be there. And oftentimes if there are in-laws or friends there, they'll wipe out those people as well. Um, So you said that the Canadian rate of familicide is 6.2%. In some research that I was uh, doing in prep for the show, I found the National Institute of Justice um, uh, statistics, and they said that basically in the U.S. it's three times that that amount. Um, I would make a, a leap here and assume that that might have something to do with the availability of weapons, but I'm just guessing. Does that seem reasonable to you?
1: I'm I'm not sure is is that um is what it would be it's actually interesting um in comparing even violent crimes in US and Canada and of course I don't have those statistics on hand but there often seems to be um higher like higher incidence rates um in the US and I you know I couldn't comment actually if it's you know to do with gun laws or
0: or not well this particular site says uh, uh 591 murder suicides 92 percent were committed with a gun in the states Mm -hmm. um yeah so they're they're kind of attributing that um to um, um to the gun thing but we'll leave that for a different show um for whatever reason and by whatever methodology we have people that are wiping out their families Mm-hmm. Um if you would like to contact the show and, and give us uh, ask a question to our guest um or, or make a comment our phone number for calling in is 646 378 0430 That's 646 378 Zero four three zero. We also have a chat room open. You're welcome to go into the chat room, and I'll share your comments and questions with Sharon. So, thank you, and uh, hopefully you have some questions or comments for us. Um, Sharon, why does this occur? Well, why do you, is you know, it just whack jobs that some, somehow fall off the deep end and just just go berserk? I mean, what what is this?
1: you know heather there's there's a lot um there's a lot of deeper issues to to what's happening here and you know when I looked through um you know some of the research that I had done before and sort of compiling some of it, you know what it came across is that a lot of times um and of course it's not surprising, and it is sad that you know a huge majority of the perpetrators are men, and you know what we're looking at is men who um, may not have a great sense or a strong sense of who they are outside of the family. And so looking at um, not, not being able to exist without that family, like what we know um, is that the incident rates or the risk to, to the woman and, of course, the, ch- the children uh, is significantly higher when she is leaving or has left the relationship And we have, you know, we see these men who don't know how to exist, don't know how to be, and almost see these as possessions that have now been um, taken away from him, that are no longer his. And there's a really, it speaks to, like, as awful as that is, it speaks to a really deep um, need and a deep longing um, within these individuals to feel like they're a part of something. And, And, of course, a much greater sense of abandonment when they're left and uh not having the coping skills not having the resources maybe not having the supports to to reach out to see beyond that
0: it's uh, common knowledge in people who work with domestic violence that the time of the highest risk of being killed is when a woman tries to leave yes yeah um and and of course you know some of that that risk of being killed includes the risk of being killed in this in this particular way Right. Um, and so, what you're saying is, is that the perpetrator—it's—it's uh, it, kind of hard for me to understand how somebody who can be so callous to their families and so selfish um, as as that uh, sees himself as as a, a, an integral part of this unit, this family unit. It just seems so inconsistent to me.
1: I'm not. I think maybe looking at him as an integral part is. Um, not what i'm trying to say what i'm trying to say is he is empty without there's no identity there's no there is nothing else so he doesn't see himself as having a place of belonging or a purpose uh, maybe in his employment right employment is a huge risk factor in these incidences Um, likely doesn't have a lot of friends or other support network, likely has been um, exposed to trauma, so very severe trauma or violence in, in their own upbringing. And so there's a, it's almost like there's no me without you. Does that kind of make sense?
0: Yeah. And that would be consistent with, you know, possessiveness and, and jealousy that we often see in domestic violence situations. Uh, I, in reading the risk factors, again, going back to this um, um, Department of Justice website, the mm-hmm. risk factors that they identify um <laughs> first and foremost is prior history of domestic violence, yes, yep, so this is definitely an issue of domestic violence um, good.
1: Oh, I was I was just going to say that, you know, looking um, again, looking at some of the research that I came across. Right, uh, the previous domestic violence was um, part of eighty percent of the cases that they looked at. That like for it to nothing else to have ever happened um, was pretty rare. And then, of course, looking at the domestic violence, like you're saying, getting worse, right? Incidences of um, strangulation and uh, just the general overall increasing in severity of the violence towards partners was, of course, uh, like an indicator, right, that things were just going to get worse.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so do these men see themselves as somehow or other mitigating um uh, harm to their families. I guess what when, I'm asking is do they, do they see themselves as this is better than staying alive and letting these kids grow up and So that's actually that's a
1: really interesting question because I did acknowledge a very small um, exception. So there's an extremely small exception to kind of that domestic violence. And there were actually a few cases where there was extreme uh, economic crisis, bankruptcy, where uh, the partner did act, you're right, wiped out the entire family, but saw it as a, this is better than poverty. This is better than losing everything we've, you know, we've ever had. Now my kids can't go to university college. We have to, the, like, almost the shame was so great that they felt that, you know, they they were saving their family from, from unbearable shame and embarrassment, which is, I mean, of course, you know, outside looking in, we think, how is that even possible? Uh, but there was a very small pocket of cases where y- you're right; it was seen as the person, you know, protecting or saving their family um, with this idea that if I wipe us all out, we we still all be together. My children uh, are never exposed to, you know, this devastation that has happened. They'll never know. And you know, generally the method there was uh, not. I mean still violent but not nearly to that same kind of degree that we would see in in the, the, the domestic violence cases. But yeah, there was a there was a few where that was
0: um where that occurred. Hm. Do, does when you're mentioning that and you said that we'll still be together, you know, obviously that brings in some religious factors because of course that all not everyone believes that there's an afterlife where people will be together. Is there any kind of commonality when it comes to uh, faith or uh, religion in any of these situations that you found?
1: You know, Heather, I wish that I could comment to that, but the research like the research that I came across is so, so limited. Um, and for a couple of reasons, right? When you look at familicide, when you're saying wiping out the entire family, who is there left to talk to? right how how do you actually do yeah, good true. research on these cases because you can, you can't actually get into the inner the inner workings and i did come across a study where um the researcher had had one um male perpetrator who i believe he tried to commit suicide and um survived and was in uh, incarcerated who had agreed and then withdrew said that he re- would refuse the interview and, of course, who wants to go knocking on the doors of surviving family members, right, extended family, and say, sure. you know, hey, I have these questions. And so the research is so extremely limited in terms of what, you know, what was kind of going on in those moments before, days before, or what what makes this that kind of over-the-top um,
0: so far and beyond what we can even comprehend, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um that's interesting. How I, you know, I mean, we're we're talking about murder suicide here. But mm-hmm. oftentimes I've read in the paper where the the perpetrator uh fails in his attempt at suicide. Is that frequent okay. did you find or you don't know? I came across a couple
1: where that happened. Um I you know, I hate to say this, but unfortunately the couple that I came across were actually re- revenge. Um, And so partner or ex-partner, you know, however that might have happened, um, did kill mom, did kill the children, and it was an act of revenge on her. You don't want to be with me. Nobody can have you. Interestingly, what did come up in the research was that um, the partner actually saw all the children, regardless if they were biological children or not biological children, um, as moms. So ah. it's almost interesting, it's a contradiction, actually, to what I had said earlier, because um, in these cases where it was uh, an act of revenge, had seen it as, you hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you in the worst way. You've taken everything from me, so I will take everything from
0: you. And, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would have thought, you know, reading, start, before I started reading your your research, I would have thought that would have been the primary scenario. Yeah, yeah. I, I really would have, um, because I, I've seen that, you know, I mean, people do that, perpetrators do that to a lesser extent when they go for custody. It's like, you know, I mean, there, some of the research has shown that, you know, the, the the men, the abusers who fight for custody, in fact, really are not dedicated to raising those children. They just want to get them away from mom for revenge. Right.
1: Yeah. And
0: um, I, I don't know how the courts are up there, but down here, most a lot of our family courts are very happily enabling them to do that. Um, and uh, so I would have thought that it was a, a power play, you know, more so uh, uh, than the um, oh the scenario that we started talking about initially of, you know, I, this, this unit is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm without this unit, I'm nothing. And so therefore, you know, I mean, what we were talking about before. Um But you're saying that it's only a a small uh, factor, this revenge is only a small factor? Yeah, and in the overall cases
1: I would say that it's, I mean, it's certainly a significant piece and usually it's the most, um, I would say garners the most attention because it's usually the least, mm, uh, I don't even know how to word it, maybe merciful. It's usually the, the nastiest of them all. Right. Yes. It's the one that gets gets a lot of media attention. Um, you know, t- tons of our research around domestic violence is done with kind of these extreme cases, right? Because of course, these are the things that we want to prevent from ever happening. Um, yeah, and so there's sometimes the pieces that are missed, right? Which yeah. is more that um, that piece that I started off saying earlier about these men who. Are are not having their own identities. Don't don't really know. It's almost like their family's been the saving grace, right? They have seen their families as um, I could become something. I felt like something of value when I was a part of this, and like I had said, now without this, I nothing.
0: So that kind of is a totally different scenario from what we usually think of as the power and control associated with domestic violence. Right. And yet. Statistically, most of these people um, uh, commit this act after a history of domestic violence. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at, if we look at risk factors, right, if we look at um, employment problems, relationship issues, mental health issues, um, addictions issues, and addictions issues are often they're not something that just develop of their own accord, right? Usually addictions issues are a response to some sort of t- traumatic event or some sort of uh, an absence of something, if you will, right? right? And so all of these for the most part, these risk factors speak to um like an injured person, an emotionally a seriously emotionally injured person, as opposed to somebody who is um acting hatefully.
0: You, and I realize I'm asking you questions that may not have, have crossed your radar when you were doing your, your uh, research um, mm-hmm. because you were reliant on what other uh, – you you did a review existing of the research. existing literature uh, to kind exactly. of pull it all together, which means that, you know, you didn't go out and collect fresh data. You didn't go out and do surveys and all of that stuff of people uh, to whom this had, had occurred. Um, instead you you gathered all of the literature where people did that and then you tried to to knit it together and cull it for what you could find from it. So right. I may be asking you questions that you can't answer. But um when you were looking at this data, did you um were were you able to put together whether there were histories of, of uh substance abuse, whether there was um um, a prior history of any kind of mental health or substance abuse? I believe, actually, that there
1: was um, a study conducted where they did find, um, again, recalling that in these studies, pretty much everybody is deceased, right? So how do you really know? I know, I
0: know it's <laughs> tough. <laughs> it's so challenging.
1: But in the few cases that they were able to find, um, there were partners who were diagnosed as narcissistic, uh, but these are those who did not commit suicide, or did not commit suicide immediately following kind of that wiping out of the family.
0: So I would uh, say that probably. The, was, so, so were there was there a percentage of those people who were unsuccessful in an attempt at suicide, or were those uh, people who just didn't bother to try suicide? That's kind of the latter, right? The people who didn't bother to commit suicide. What they did
1: find looking at, you know, what they could gather is anxiety and depression as well as um, borderline personality disorder were of those that they could identify mental health, um, you know, records or diagnoses with. um, Those were what they saw as, as common factors.
0: Wow. Yeah, so complex. You know, like so many of these issues, we tend to see. We, we say familicide. You know, um, uh, the statistics I was looking at—82% of them in the states um, have a history of domestic violence. So we think, okay, domestic violence. We, you know, power and control. And, you know, so the whole picture I have of perpetrators who uh, commit familicide um, is is kind of different from what you're describing for me. At least a portion of what you're describing is different from that. Um, well, so that. I guess, Heather, like,
1: in this way, right, this, this literature review that I put together is looking at the the far extremities of the worst, right, where things have really so seriously broken down. We're not looking at sort of middle of the road, but if we can look at, okay, you know, 80, 80% of these cases, or I think you said 82% in the states, had previous incidences of domestic violence. So if we can backtrack a little bit and look at risk factors for domestic violence, what do we, what do we see, right? What do we see as, as risk factors? Um, and we're looking at risk factors as being like, a, you know, um, substance abuse, employment problems, um, witnessing family violence uh, as a child, traumatic incidents, mental health. Like, we're actually looking at really human problems,
0: yeah. Why the children though? That's I, you know I mean I, I I guess it sounds really crass of me to say okay you hate your spouse or you want to control your spouse blah blah blah, but your children? I mean right. I, it, it, that just is such you know that I think for most of us that uh, it's just incomprehensible. I guess <laughs> I guess what I'm saying the corollary to that is I can picture you killing your spouse but not your children which is not what I mean exactly but kind of and.
1: You know what to be you know that's exactly why I did this because I thought, "Oh, okay, like I can understand things break down and um and that's that was the exact reason that I chose to um to do this review was to to try to answer that question, and you know there was the revenge piece, which was okay, you know maybe that's one reason this is the worst possible harm that I can cause you um and so there was that piece. It was um, that, you know, like I said, that very small uh, portion, which I believe is called a nomicide. And so that was where, like I said, there was some substantial crisis. Uh, Usually it was related to economic crisis, where um, fortunes were lost and jobs were lost and kind of everything was going to fall apart, their life as they knew it, and um partner saw it as like i said protecting and keeping the family together and uh protecting children from that shame and embarrassment and um you know kind of that worst case scenario again difficult because you you don't ever get to interview these people um and then looking at as well as seeing them as you know i i can't live without you I you know, so we're all gonna do this together, and I think that some piece of it was also um maybe related to to guilt to um, I don't want you to have to suffer being alive, knowing that I've killed myself and your mother,
0: Wow, yeah, thinking the thinking. Yes. I know in in my family there there was a suicide and so I've spent a great deal of time you know learning as much as I could about the thinking of someone who commits suicide and it's extremely selfish because uh, for you know I mean because it's it, you're so caught up in your own head um, that that's all you see, and you make rationalizations about how people will be better off without you and all those kinds of things, and um, which is not to say I'm, I'm blaming that person. I mean, there's reasons that, you know, the, that folks are caught up in their own heads, you know. I, I, it, um, but it, it ultimately is a very selfish thing. But it seems to me when you take the family, it goes beyond selfish and more into um, I, I know what's going to be best for you. Yeah.
1: That makes sense. Well yeah, that's exact. I don't want you to live through the pain, you know, of of the world. The world is a cruel place. Somebody's gonna take your heart out and stomp on it, you know, and yeah. It's it's quite it's quite distorted, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just it is. looking at I'm just looking heather at the conclusion that I had written here and um the the ideas of um, being a suicide survivor and the shame related to that. Um, revenge were seen as, and revenge was seen as a motivating factor. Um, and also acknowledging that, I mean, kids are not the targeted victims most most of the time. But seen as, yeah, I've got right here, but um, rather due to the perpetrator's inability to see individuation, individuation and family members are killed as part of ending the family unit. Hmm. or or as extensions of the
0: targeted partner. That I can see. Where, you know, you, you yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and that comes to that whole your mind, your mind to determine what happens. What happens, yeah, exactly. You know, to exactly. you, yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, if you have some questions or comments, please get in touch with us. It's 646-378-0430. I do have a question in the chat room. Um, Is it always men who do this? No. There was a
1: few circumstances where it was women. Um, And the common factor in women, like it was very few. Again, the research is limited. um, But they did find female perpetrators, and the common factor was that the women had actually been abusive to their children so that was something that stood out as different um as from the male perpetrators male perpetrators mm-hmm. more like, were more likely like uh, obviously a lot more likely to have been abusive towards their partner whereas mm-hmm. wh- female perpetrators were likely to have been abusive towards their children and probably their partner as well um mm-hmm. the research didn't differentiate but just saw that as a like as a, something exceptional
0: mm-hmm. Well, and of course, you know, when we look at these statistics, we you never know. I mean, just because there was no, uh, you know, I, 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 just because there was no domestic violence reported, there was no paper doesn't, trail. Doesn't mean it didn't occur. Just because exactly. there was no uh, child abuse reported, of course, didn't mean it didn't occur. So, you know, I mean, we're making best guess assumptions, which is all we can ever do on these things until we get more information. How many did of the the cases that you studied? How many um, of the men um, did not die? The perpetrators. Oh. How many of them did not die? I don't have that number, Heather. Was it just a few or a a sizable number? Yeah, the number just isn't there. Sorry. Okay. All right. Then I won't push you for that. Um, But um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the consequences of this. Um, What happens to these perpetrators, I wonder, if they don't die? clearly there must be criminal charges i mean I, I this is beyond your study i'm not expecting you to answer i'm just tossing out things that make that, that the study made me wonder about um and then there's also the issue of what happens to the the uh extended family and uh that's left alive after all of this it must just be a horrendous problem yes. Do you encounter any kind of information on the, along those lines
1: I didn't, but it was something I wrote into, you know, discussing, like, what what can we do with this, right? How does knowing these things, um, I guess, have any usefulness? And, uh, you know, um, working in the field of counseling, it was certainly something that I thought, you know, the answers aren't there. And... How do you give those to extent the surviving family members, right? Those extended family members, and say, oh, you know, this is our best guess. There's not a lot of research there, but at least being able to put it, um, put it together. Maybe there's something, some kind of reasoning that can be given to those who are, you know, dealing with the horrendous grief and loss um, associated with that.
0: Yeah, it but. must
1: just be amazing. Yeah, well, and I mean, and the, sh- the shame, right? We know that that's such a contributing factor in domestic violence, and it has it has a huge ripple effect. Um, you know, sh- shame. People don't want to talk about it. Whether you know they're they're victims or perpetrators, there's shame there. For these family members who are the survivors, I mean, everybody everybody's gonna know, right? That this is what happened, and why didn't they do something? And uh, there's tons of questions, and so I think it's so isolating to be, um, whether it's a survivor of a familicide incident in terms of extended family, or just to be a survivor at all, right? It's so
0: difficult to yeah. to reach out. It is. Well, and, and regardless of, of what life experience you have gone through to survive, um, people who haven't experienced that, I, I, we we tend to be unintentionally cruel, I think, to our our fellow human beings. You know, we tend to see everything through our own lenses and if we have never experienced domestic violence, we really don't get it. And so we do the whole you know, oh, just buck up and just forget it, just let it go, and you know, and all those kinds of things. Uh, Same thing with with suicides. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I've experienced this too, where people you know, just casually say, oh, I'd just kill myself if I have to do that. And then they look at me and realize that, you know, um, you know, I, I am actually familiar with this. And then they go through the whole, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, you know. Uh, what we, and and to me, it's just like, I know they don't mean that. I mean, that it doesn't strike me as, you know, hurtful when people say things like that. Um, right. But we always look at our own lens, you know, through our own lenses. And so when we experience something like this, we're looking at it through our own lenses, and that limits how we can be helpful to the other person, I think. Yes, um, I. Go ahead. Um, I was just wanting to bring in a little bit about the work that you do, uh, mm-hmm. for uh, what is it, North Peace um, Society uh, North Peace. for the Prevention of Domestic Violence? Yeah. Yes, thank Quite you. Thank name. you. <laughs> um, so, uh, what is it about your work that tied in with this? Now, you mentioned that there was an extraneous situation. Were you? Was that something that that came about through your work, or did you just stumble upon that? No, but um that was just something that I had well it's just something that had occurred and
1: I was actually working in a research course um kind of right around the time that that happened and thinking, you know, what what would I like to work on, you know, what's an area that I feel um would be useful and interesting and and uh, tied well also into my work and so that was something that came up for me, but my my work here um is I work with men and women whose lives have been impacted by domestic violence. And so um, I don't differentiate when I work with individuals between victim and perpetrator. And so people that come through our doors um, could could be either or. It could be a couple that's in real trouble, and this has kind of been their, um, their unfortunate method of uh, dealing with or encountering conflict I'll say cuz they're not dealing with it um and yeah I provide uh, individual and couple and group uh counseling to to these men and women
0: hmm. yeah so but you don't do couples counseling I do with, yep I do with I do with, do the, some couples with domestic counseling. violence perpetrators and their and their victim
1: not with severe cases, not with high-risk cases, no. Generally, uh, you know, at that point, doing the couple's work, it would be um, verbal violence. It hasn't escalated to that degree. A lot of um, name-calling, psychological destruction, but not
0: where there's physical or or sexual threat of violence. Hmm, yeah. Um, uh, you have my admiration working with perpetrators. I don't think that's anything I could ever actually do. Um um, I, that that is, um, I think, a, a really specialized skill to be able to set yourself back from that um, and actually do productive work with them. That's just my personal feeling. Um, mm. And how did you prepare for the, this work? Uh, would, I'm not sure what you're getting at, Heather. Not, not sure your what your background, is. education, work experience. You know, I mean, what what led you to this? Oh, work?
1: okay, okay. Well,
0: um, <laughs> I've worked in a. <laughs> In <laughs> well, I get up every so, morning. I brush my teeth. I've been right, I'm not
1: sure what you're asking me here. Um, <laughs> uh, when I moved to Peace River, I actually did some family support work, and uh, you know, got to know some of the families in our area, and just um, got to, I guess, have an inside look at of the struggles people were having and then I did some child protection work and this really seemed to be kind of an ongoing um, theme and some individuals in our community really realized that there are a lot of services um, and supports for victims and that was actually something I um, wanted to speak to when I was talking about the shame piece is that there's often a number of supports. Uh, for victims, right? We have programs, we have, you know, um, all kinds of books and um, support services, but the message really becomes, or it can become, you need to change. And what we often offer for um, perpetrators is jail. And so really, you know, who are we putting the onus on, right? Who are we saying is the problem, Um yeah. when it's saying, you know, we've got this for you and we've got this for you and we've got this for you and a lot of times it just feels like, um, we're telling we're telling the victim you're the one who needs to change. There is something wrong with you. Um, as opposed to working more with offenders. And so what happened in our community is that people came together and acknowledged, you know, we have all of these programs, but there really seems to be a gap in service, especially when it comes to prevention. So maybe there was an incident where things got out of hand, um, threats were made, or objects were broken, or, you know, it wasn't, um, the severity wasn't there, uh, maybe for jail time, and, or if there was jail time, there was nothing else, there was no follow-up, you know, fines were issued or jail time, and that was kind of it. And so they came together and they applied for some grant funding, and developed a society, and... Um, a year down the road, then uh, I was hired. I was hired to be the executive director and also the therapist here, and um, so that's that's what we do. And we've continued to sort of develop and change and grow as we have gone along and gotten to know, um, you know, really what is happening for people and what what makes a difference in a positive way. And also, you know, what are the risk factors that people experience. And so. I guess in a way I'm doing my own research, <laughs> you know, live and in person, um, but haven't compiled it into any any um kind of publishable data at this point. But it's yeah. been
0: uh, it's been very eye-opening. It's been yeah. very eye-opening for me. I uh, yeah, I would imagine it is. I I think that whenever you get into delve into this kind of work, it's it's just yeah, uh, astounding. Um um I th- I think that, you know, for me, I mean, I it just created a whole new path for me you know of of what what we need to look at and this whole issue of familicide is just i mean besides being absolutely shocking and and so so tragic um it also is fascinating it's fascinating Mm -hmm. how um the mind of the perpetrator can can justify uh, these kinds of actions um, and I, and I just think that I, I'm glad to see your research. I think that there needs to be a lot more research. Um, I'm a big fan of research, but I think that you know I'm a fan of it in collective groups, not just one piece of research. I, I you know that that shows us just one little scene, but when we get collective research, then we can see you know the whole. The whole thing that's going on, I think, a lot better. And I think that we need to have more research in this particular area because I believe it is an increasing uh, problem. Do you uh, Did you come across anything indicating it's increasing?
1: Um, our statistics here indicate that it is increasing. Obviously, seeing more in the news, um, you know, on an ongoing basis is really sad. And then, of course, you know, with Alberta's current recession, um Unfortunately, that just increases the likelihood that there will be even more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but what, you know, where I really see a gap in research is what what made a difference. How many people got to that point, had that in your mind, right, what you're saying about how the heck do you make a decision that this is what you're going to do, that this seems like the answer to, you know, your problem or... Um, to dealing with your, you know, pain or whatever the case might be. How does a person even reach that? But I think what's even more interesting and is possible to do research on is how many people reached that point of uh, desperation, despair, um, anger, rage, you know, revenge, feelings of revenge, and didn't act on it, right? What was the determinant factor that said this is an option and said no, right yeah. like going back to that piece about suicide thoughts of suicide are very common in the general population but for whatever reason i mean there are those who take their lives and there are those who don't and what happens um, i mean thankfully there's you know pretty good research around that but what happens that stops people where is that um where's the fork in the road right and how do we right how do we make the, you know the other way or how do we reinforce that like you don't have to do this it doesn't ever have to come to this and so yeah i, I just i you know wish that well i have a million research wishes um but i wish <laughs> that, that was something that you know could be looked further into is in that moment how you know of those who chose not to what made you choose to do something different you know to drop the gun and walk out of the house or to not show up at her place. I mean, how many people sat outside, right, and then said, this isn't what I want to do? Again, I mean, there's a million difficulties in that. Who's going to identify and raise their hand and say, pick me, I'm ready for an interview? That was me.
0: But, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, me, me, I was that wacko.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> right? But,
1: I mean, there is there is an opportunity there right to to maybe you probably wouldn't be overwhelmed with people um you know wanting to participate in that research but i think that there would be a few especially people for whatever reason were able to turn it around
0: well and i think that you know those that's what we need to look at more i think in our research we we are so keyed into looking at what happened and why instead of yes. looking at why it didn't happen um, yeah. So you know, and, and for obvious reasons, you know that you've you've talked about it as as far as the difficulties. When we come to familicide, you and I were talking a little earlier about methodology. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the uh, familicides that occur in the states are perpetrated by a gun. Same thing in Canada.
1: Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And I'm not
0: sure like
1: you had brought up um, you know, gun legislation earlier. That might be a contributing factor, but it, it is also like it's the quickest it's it's the quickest and most effective weapon. Yeah. Right, in yeah. these cases. And so that may also um be a contributing factor to that.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So, um, you know, I mean, if there's a will, there's a way. No matter what, uh, I think. Um, but there's no no question that gun accessibility might make it a little easier, a little bit more happen more readily. I don't know. I, I you know, that's well, a whole different discussion.
1: It is. It is. Though, when you look at general domestic violence, when you're doing an, a, a risk assessment, um, access to weapons, access to firearms, is a contributing risk factor um, for things to get worse, right? For death threats, um attempted murders, like it is a risk factor.
0: Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Um but, you know, um when you mention the assessment, um, you know, the old danger assessment um um uh, uh, document that that was developed in the 80s. Uh, We're still using that, Um, you know, that's still being used, and for those of you who aren't familiar with the danger assessment, um, it's simple questions like, um, has the physical violence increased in frequency over the past year? Has the violence increased in severity over the past year, and has a weapon or a threat of a weapon been used? Choking, is there a gun in the house? Has he ever forced you to have sex when he didn't wish to? Does he use drugs um, or other substances? Does he threaten to kill you? Do you believe he's capable of killing you? Is he drunk? Um, uh, Does he control most or all of your daily activities? Um, have you ever been beaten by him when you were pregnant? Is he violently and constantly jealous of you? Uh, have you ever threatened? To commit, ha- have you ever threatened or tried to commit suicide? Has he ever threatened or tried to commit suicide? Is he violent toward your children? Is he violent outside of your home? And those are the questions for um, um, assessment of the likelihood of uh, somebody actually carrying out and and killing either one or more uh members of, of his family and we still use that even though it's 20 some years old it is 20 some no i guess it's 30 some years old now isn't it yeah, are you aware of any, any are the same yeah are you aware of any more recent assessment tool
1: um there there are numerous um assessment tools but i think that one is kind of the the same old right there's a Spousal assault risk assessment tool developed by Randall crop um here our r c m p use what's called the fever assessment, and um that's just a quick kind of you know pocket guide that they can go through when they're responding to a call um I know that there's like there's a number that are out there i don't know i do know that that one is specifically developed- the danger assessment is specifically developed um to assess risk of homicide and i don't know if there are others out there that. Focus as uh, specifically on that rather than um, risk of reoffending or risk of violence.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, it you know, um, and and I don't think we can have any discussion about uh, domestic violence or, or even at the peripheries without talking about uh, the role of shelters. Um, right shelters, you know, we tend to think of them as rather benign places where women can go and get away from an abuser. But the fact is, shelters can be really dangerous places. I mean, you know, if you've got a whack job like this who happens to find out where his potential victim is, I mean, it can be a dangerous place. Better than nothing. I mean, it's it's. The best thing we've got going right now, uh, but I know a lot of, of um, agencies that, that deal in the protection of domestic violence victims are have for years explored other options, you know, uh, um, coupons for hotels and, you know, other kinds of living arrangements. Um, but had, did you see any of these situations where when we're talking about familicide, we tend to think that it's done at home, but in fact it doesn't have to be, does it? No, I certainly don't think it
1: does. I didn't come across um, any cases that were covered in the research, but I am aware that there have been a few. Um, And I know that, you know, even having a shelter here in our community, there's been concerns about um, partners, you know, showing up at the shelter, sitting outside in in vehicles, right, watching kind of the goings-on. And thankfully, um, you know, shelter staff are well-trained and shelters are built to be uh, places of... Of safety, right? There's you know the cameras and security and and whatnot. But I mean, you're right. There are there are other ways. But then, if you put a woman in a hotel, um, who's to say that if he shows up, anybody's going to know? right?
0: Exactly.
1: If he if he's still able to find her, does I mean is the person in the room next door going to call? You know, call the police, call the front desk, right? And so, I mean, there's a uh, like safety is a huge huge issue and there just doesn't seem to be any one answer.
0: Well, that's it. I I mean there aren't there is no one answer to most of these social problems and yet we keep constantly <laughs> struggling away trying to find that answer. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. the one. <laughs> you know? yes. And 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 we come up with whatever it is whether it's global warming or whatever. I mean, we try to find the answer and in fact it has to be a number of answers. Um When you are talking about um, uh, the place where things are perpetrated here, where where familicide could be perpetrated, um, did you also find any peripheral victims? Um, In other words, I I know in our community several years ago there was a, a neighbor uh, visiting, and the neighbor was killed right along with the family. I've heard of uh, grandparents and extended family members who might have been killed along with the immediate family. How common is that? And is that just an accident of, of location, or is there any evidence that, that they were intended victims as well?
1: You know, it,
0: uh, both um, you know, there
1: wasn't a lot of incidents again in the research, and the definition by its, you know, by itself limits things, and of course how incidents are um, recorded as well, right? Uh, right? In terms of statistics and finding those things out, right? Lots of them are are classified as a homicide versus mm-hmm. um, a familicide. Those kinds of issues and doing research, but I do know recently there was a case um, in Edmonton, I believe, December of last year um where a woman and her children and i believe it was extended family members um were killed by this perpetrator and i think that she had been there um visiting i believe i don't want to say that as a as a fact but i do know that sometimes um sometimes they're targets and sometimes it's wrong wrong place right yeah. i think i do, i do think that there are both right those unintended victims or people who um Surprise, maybe surprise the perpetrator. But uh yeah, I think you know, kind of when you're in that mindset, it likely doesn't matter.
0: You just do it. And
1: that's that's why that's why actually suicide is such a big risk. Uh such a big risk factor is because if you're willing to take your own life, you never have to live with the consequences of what you've done. That's true.
0: That's true and and that's it would be interesting I, for some it would be interesting for somebody to do research as to what role faith might play in this mm-hmm. whether that would mitigate it you know if you believe that you're going to have to answer to a higher power after you do this are you less likely to do it than if you believe there is no higher power or afterlife or whatever that would be well it it and i think you might find
1: the flip side there as well about um, faith believes that if there has been issues of infidelity, or um, let's say you know crimes of faith or crimes against faith, right? That it um,
0: oh sure yeah I didn't think of wants, that
1: warrants punishment right? I would be seen as as righteous um, for punishing you for what you've done. Huh? So I okay. think you would find both there that it could
0: be risk and it could be protective factor as well. Oh. Have you you did the study last year? Um are you currently doing any other studies or um, I did this I actually so it was published in 2014
1: but I actually wrote it in 2011 but publication is a long process. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I I am um right now working with a a research team who's actually looking at the needs of um women in rural and northern communities in Canada um and what their needs are in terms of uh, leaving or addressing um intimate partner violence in their relationships. Wow. Yeah, yeah and then good. as I, I mean, said of course my research list wish list is quite lengthy.
0: Yeah, I bet. You know, I I I think the more that you start looking at the research, I, well, I'm a big fan of <laughs> of the research. I really am. Um, I have a friend who goes, research is just nothing. It just, you know, but I I I like the research. I like looking at it. Um, there was an article, um, a, a blog article, um, that talked about familicide and uh, called it familicide, the new domestic violence, mm. and. Yeah, and I was reading that, and um, it was not laced with a lot of accurate uh, data, but it did make the point that um, because of the increasing frequency and because of increasing coverage, um, that familicide is becoming the new normal. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're no longer shocked by this and if it happens we kind of go oh well that's because of the economy or that's because of this or that's because of that do you have any feelings about that i have lots of feelings about that <laughs> well go ahead and share them <laughs> but
1: i certainly hope that that is not i certainly hope that that is not true heather but you know if we if we go right back down to domestic violence people don't want to talk about it uh, right. It's not easy to address. It is a complex, multiple-layered issue. And I do believe what we're starting to see is that there's not a good guy and there's not a bad guy. Um, you know, victim and perpetrator are not so easily um, kind of split into two anymore. A lot of the old research that we had focused on what we um well, at least I now believe, are intimate terrorists. And so these are people who are out, like you had said, for power and control. And then we have those who I kind of mentioned, um, you know, with more of the abandonment. I just don't have my own identity. I don't have the skills or the ability to cope with, you know, my feelings or my thoughts. And I can't remember where I was going with that, but... um, I hope I hope that it's not normal and so as things become more complex people don't want to talk about it because it's not it's not so easy to understand. And when I was talking about shame, you know, earlier I thought people uh, we have a booth. So we set up an information table about our services often at a health fair um or a woman show, or something like that, something that seems to make sense to us as a good place to set up and, and access the public and be able to answer some questions. And people will walk around our table as though we were selling, you know, the plague in a bottle. Um, people <laughs> yes. people stay very far away because they think that if they come over and if they ask questions, that others in the community will identify them as being, you know, being impacted by domestic violence. And I think, man, like, so what? You know, even if that were true, even if that were true, how hard is it then to get help? You know, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman or, you know, whatever the case might be, how hard is it to get help then when when there's such a big, you know, shame factor around it and people don't want to be seen as being a part of it. People well, don't want to
0: even be seen at the table. Exactly, I and I've encountered the same thing. I, I work with a nonprofit with domestic violence, and I was speaking to a man once who was on the board of a children's charity, and uh, I told him that I worked with this, and he said, "Oh, I used to do some stuff with you know one of the uh, you know nonprofits for domestic violence, but I had to I just you know I, I I prefer working here with the children because the children are always happy. Whatever you do for the children, they make they're happy and they're smiling. And domestic violence is such a downer." Oh. And I kind of looked at him and I said, "Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we can't make it more entertaining for you." Gee, you know, Jeez. You I know mean, Heather, I, I have to tell you, like,
1: I, I love what I do. Like, I am deeply passionate about what I do. But I will tell you, and this is mine and anyone who's listening, secret. Um, I love working with the men. It is my absolute favorite part of what I do, because I get to see amazing, amazing conversations um, unfold. I get to see them connect, you know, to one another in ways that they never would, you know, in Buddy's shop or, you know, in hockey practice or a change room or whatever. I get them to talk, you know, they talk about their heartaches. They talk about loneliness. They talk about the importance of feeling like they have something to offer their per- their partner. They talk about wanting to be loved and they talk about the difficulties and the frustrations of trying to love somebody. And it's amazing. Like it's so amazing and these are such different conversations than a society the way that we have painted men. And I just um but when I said it's been really eye-opening work for me, that's what I was talking about because you know, I have, so I see men's group on Tuesday, and I see women's group on Thursday, and we write on a flip chart, and I never read anything identifying. But even when I flip back, the women have seen the notes from the men's group, and they say, I'm so surprised, like, there's more notes on their sheet than there is on ours, <laughs> you know? Or, yeah. I can't believe they said that. Or, um, like, they're really, they're shocked at the, the depth of these men, and... Um, the things that they're willing to share, and it's it's beautiful, it's amazing. I have students come in, you know, from a college here, from social work programs, who often expect um, very much like, oh, I don't think, you know, that I can do this, and um, they probably don't talk very much. And to uh, to see the men open up, to see their... Almost joy and enthusiasm that it's it's safe to have these conversations these things that they've never thought about or been okay to talk about before it's you know it's really it's so rewarding and I think if this is what we could do right before it became to this to this point, if we could focus more on compassion on empathy on you know, not turning away from that person who needs us. So when you're saying is familicide the new normal? I sure hope not. I sure hope that as human beings, we have enough compassion and care to, you know, to say like, hey, is everything okay? You know, do you want to do you want to talk, or t- even just to call the police, right? Like, you know, everybody knows the stats in Alberta are one in three people especially women, one in three women are impacted by family violence. So I'm gonna just barring to with the United States as well. Yeah. Yep, and barring same sex couples, okay? Because I don't have the stats for that, but barring same sex couples, that means that one in three men in heterosexual couples is also experiencing family violence. And so why why aren't we addressing that, right? Why is jail time the answer, or fines, you know, in our case around here, you know, fines. But why aren't we looking at programming for both, healing programs, coping programs, you know, good relationship programs?
0: Sharon, are your men there voluntarily, or have they been court-ordered?
1: You know what, half and half.
0: I have guys here who are court-ordered. I also do work in the jail, so we
1: do a group um, in our local correctional center, uh, but ours are half and half, so we have some that come maybe th- through probation, some that come through ch- Child and Family Services, and some that come of their own accord. And I'm very proud to tell you that many of the self-referrals we have come because somebody else came to the program and said, you really need to check this out. I have men who repeat the program. Sharon, sure, I'm going to have they- to cut you off. Yep. It sounds like we've oh, got okay. another
0: show going here. Um oh, okay. Okay. But- um, <laughs> uh, um what uh, one of the things that I'm looking at is the clock and I'm going wow um you know our time has just gone uh what can I tell you and um I, I I need to to move on um but I I also uh want you to um uh, know how very very appreciative I am of you taking your time with us today I usually end our show with a quote um I don't today, it's just too difficult to find something that would encompass what we've talked about, but I appreciate your being with us. Sharon, thank you, and thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Mm Ways.